another episode of The End of Sport. We have a very special week coming up on The End of Sport. It's gymnastics week here on the pod where we showcase amazing work and stories being done in the field or in the area of gymnastics um, and outlining a variety of harms associated with the sport and gymnastics culture more generally. And as you probably know, gymnastics and gymnastics culture has um, recently really come to the fore of popular culture with the release of um, Netflix documentary Athlete A and Heavy Metals. And so we here on The End of Sport really wanted to focus on the harms associated with that sport. And, and we have three really interesting episodes coming out this week on this topic. So without further ado, I'm just going to leave it. But first, as always, if you're enjoying the show, please feel free to like, share, and leave us a review on Apple or Google or Spotify. Give us a follow on Twitter or Instagram at End of Sport Pod. Email us at theendofsport at gmail.com. Or if you're interested, we've just recently launched a website at theendofsport.com. So please feel free to check it out. And before we begin, Johanna, Nathan, and myself just published a piece on the NCAA and harm already done to athletes during the COVID-19 pandemic. It was just released in the Chronicle of Higher Education, so that will be linked in the show notes. So with all that said, please enjoy the show. Dr. Georgia Servan is a historian associated with the University of Western Australia and based in Wellington, New Zealand. Her work focuses on the politics and development of women's gymnastics during the Cold War. She also works as an historian for the government on Indigenous issues. Her recent co-edited volume with Claire Nicholas, titled Histories of Women's Work in Global Sport, A Man's World, was recently shortlisted by the North American Society for Sport History for Best Anthology. She is currently in the final stages of finishing her forthcoming book, tentatively titled Degrees of Difficulty, How Women's Gymnastics Rose to Prominence and Fell from Grace. She was also an elite gymnast for many years in New Zealand, so we are fortunate in that she's also approaching her topic with vast personal experience in the sport. And I should say, in all transparency, Georgia and I met at the archives of the International Olympic Committee, I believe in the summer of 2016. And since then, she's been a really good uh, colleague and mentor for me over the years. And so I'm just really excited to be able to talk with her today. So Georgia, we are thrilled that you could join us all the way from New Zealand. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. And um, yeah, I'm really excited to be here. Awesome. Um, so one thing that we've been asking everybody um, sort of before we jump into it is sort of how they're doing right now. Um, so how are you doing with the pandemics? And uh, we've been asking people in the U.S. about sort of the Black Lives Matter uprisings, but I don't even know to what extent <laughs> that's been going on in, in Wellington. So sort of how are things going on over there? Yeah, things are pretty good. Um, we had a really strict lockdown starting back in um March for COVID and like we couldn't we couldn't really leave the house actually just to go to the supermarket or to walk around the neighborhood um so it was really strict and then we kind of eased up in uh May we could like go to 
cafes but only for takeaways that kind of thing um and by june like we've we're basically back to life as normal now um there's there's no more cases in this country except uh people like our citizens coming back home but they go through quarantine so it's not really in the community at the moment so we're we're really lucky um it was strict but it's kind of paid off for us so yeah um but new zealanders travel a lot so although it's life as usual the the leaving our country part of our life has has stopped so that's different um and yeah black lives matter i mean that's that's reached us here as well we have been there have been a lot of protests um it's probably equally directed at um what's happening in america but also kind of reflecting on our own um colonial history and a lot of talk about you know what statues and street names um because a lot of them kind of celebrate these uh oppressive kind of colonial figures um yeah so there's there's that conversations happening here which is it's just really cool especially as a historian um being a part of that yeah Definitely. That's so interesting. You know, I, I hadn't, I admit, I hadn't really even looked to see to what extent um, <laughs> sort of the Black Lives Matter like reverberated over over there. Um, mm. I mean, yeah, that's that's absolutely really encouraging. Um, I'm also very jealous that you all handled, <laughs> you all took the, pan, the pandemic so seriously, as you probably know, that is not really been the case here. I mean, that there, there was like a moment where we were, but um, not so much anymore. So um, c- cases are skyrocketing here in a lot of places. But I mean, New Zealand, I feel like is like one of the examples that everyone's talking about that. And the fact that like, you have a female prime minister, and she's the one that's really had the led the way, which is just really amazing. Yeah, she got a lot of buy in from most of the country and like the opposition party were also really supportive of um the action the government took so i guess we're kind of lucky in that sense that um yeah there was a lot of support for for a very strict kind of approach but um it's worked so yeah yeah that's amazing Cool. Um, So just to introduce uh, listeners a little bit more to her work um, that we're going to be talking about today and sort of how today's going to go. So Georgia's work weaves weaves a truly fascinating history of the development of women's gymnastics over time, as well as the role that members of different groups have played in shaping the nature and history of the sport, the understandings of femininity, etc., and by members, I wanted to be clear by, by saying that I mean athletes, coaches, judges, national gymnastics federations in every country, the International Gymnastics Federation, which goes by FIG, and um, the IOC. In this episode, we are going to try to tease out the threads of this really complicated history with, with all of these different kind of groups of people involved and how it relates to the abusive conditions that have seemed to characterize gymnastics and who we might deem to be responsible for making the sport what it is. And at the end, we will talk about what she thinks um, we should know regarding the new and scathing documentary, Athlete A. So to start off with, um, now the connection between uh, gymnastics and femininity and also ideas about race, as you write, seem to be part of the foundation of the sport. For example, in your work, you mentioned at different points um, how FIG's code of points 
is founded in ideas about women's femininity and whiteness, uh, which seem to dictate the gender conformity and racial whiteness of the sport. Now, first off, what is the code of points and why is it grounded in ideas about femininity and race and what impact has this had on the sport? So the code of points is um, basically the rule book. Um, it, because gymnastics is judged, um, there needs to be some kind of measures of, of how we determine a winner. So it's not as straightforward as, you know, who gets to the finish line first. So the code of points says um, how many points you get for doing um, certain skills or elements on each apparatus. It assesses how difficult they are. Um, but also it, it tells judges how many points to take away from a gymnast when they make mistakes. So if they um, step on a landing or fall or do something with bent legs, um, that kind of stuff. So it's really shaping uh, not only what gymnasts do, but how they do it. Uh, yeah. And that was um, the code of points comes out every four years after the Olympics to kind of reset uh, what we're seeing in the sport. So if there's heaps of gymnasts doing uh, one skill and it's just, it's becoming a bit uh, repetitive and boring, they, the FIG will kind of devalue that skill to disincentivize people continuing to do it. Um, yeah, it also sets out, you know, equipment rules, uh, who's, you know, outfit rules, uh, people who's allowed on the floor, that kind of thing. Um, so fundamentally, it's saying what performances are desired, what is valued in the sport, what, what does artistry or femininity look like? Um, and yeah, so the code of points also uh, is grounded in ideals of race and femininity. Um, there's a really good scholar called Shani Shakur who did her uh, PhD thesis about race and gymnastics. And she notes that the code of points, uh, it has little illustrations that um, show what, what each element looks like. And those illustrations are meant to be a neutral person. There's no uh, facial features on this person. But still, um, the gymnast is white and her leotard is shaded in dark. She's wearing her hair in a ponytail, which uh, excludes certain types of hair and certain hairstyles. Uh, so there, there are these assumptions in the sport about, um, about race, really. And the femininity aspect um, kind of grows from gymnastics origins uh, in which it's, it's positioned as a sport that is okay for women to do. It's not, uh, this is, you know, early uh, 20th century, late 19th century. It's trying to appeal to these ideas about protecting women's bodies, encouraging them to engage in passive and graceful looking movements. Um, and the code of points really entrenches that 
into the judging and is kind of saying that um you know that's that's what where the value lies in what gymnasts are performing the more feminine they look the higher their points so we we see this the intersection of these kind of um feminine and racial ideas in the way the code values for example uh, dance skills that are based on ballet and include uh, like pirouettes and uh, leaps um, whereas the code doesn't really include elements from other styles of dance uh, the gymnast danced to piano uh, until cassettes were introduced in the 1980s uh, cassette tapes but what about other instruments you know um and other kind of dance styles, they're, they're just not really accounted for in the sport. And not it's not that they're excluded, like a gymnast could do that, but there's nothing in the, the rules that would allow them to get any points for doing that. So, mm-hmm. yeah, and also just um, to add, uh, in response to Black Lives Matter a couple of weeks ago, the, the FIG released a statement uh, basically saying how gymnastics is really inclusive and it could be like a they don't we don't tolerate discrimination it could be a model for other sports but I mean sure that we there are successful black gymnasts in um in the sport right now but they've gained this acceptance performing to these to these white ideals and you can kind of see that in the backlash around uh Gabby Douglas's hair when she won the Olympic all around in uh, 2012. She was wearing her hair in a ponytail, just like her teammates. But critics online they just slammed her for not representing black black women and kind of pandering mm-hmm. to this hairstyle that is um, not, I guess, representative of of the, of black women and not doing a great job of it. Um, but in fact, you know, she's this amazing gymnast and she it made such huge advances in what was still a, quite a white space. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'll also, also add about the code. Um, it's also like a record-keeping system for the sport. So the gymnastics used to be judged out of 10 points. Um, and quite famously, I guess, gymnasts would get... 10 or 9.9 that kind of thing there was no no records once once Nadia Komenech had achieved that 10 back Mm. in uh, 1976 but the records exist in gymnastics in the code of points where every element like cartwheel or backhand spring they all have names and once you get beyond the simple stuff like cartwheels and forwards rolls and stuff the elements are named after the people who did them first. So um, you would, you, if you watch the Olympics, you'll probably hear people talking about an Aminar on vault, and uh, that was debuted by a Romanian gymnast called Simona Aminar. So people have these goals of getting their name into the book, and that's how you really kind of get a legacy in gymnastics. It's now. Uh, we abandoned the 10 system. You can get scores that are like 15.1 kind of stuff. Um, so that 
that's the new way of record keeping. We still also have the naming of elements, but um, yeah, so the 10 system's gone basically. Wow, thank you so much. There's like, you did such a fantastic job of explaining what to me, like it seems really complicated, but you just laid it all out for us. So, so thank you so much. And you know what really, um, I mean, it was, you know, Georgia, as some of, you know, listeners, like I was a swimmer. And so like there, there is a really thick rule book, but right. It's like based on races and it's based on time. And yes, there are absolutely like styles that are built into it. And I'm, I'm hoping that someone's working on it to kind of look into ideas about gender and race and, and that sort of stuff. If someone hasn't done it already, but you did a great job of laying out how, um, because it's so like it's, it's judged by people that there's sort of like a subjective element that then there has to be like a foundational rule book that guides, right? How the judges are deciding who's like what each maneuver is going to count for. And also like keep the sport, I guess, up to date, which is, mm-hmm. which is why they, they reset it. Right. So that they can sort of decide which styles are still relevant. Does yeah, exactly. Right? Exactly. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's to keep up with what the gymnasts are doing because it's, it's a constant um, back and forth between these, this, the FIG who's making these rules and the gymnasts kind of, interpret them in ways the FIG didn't always anticipate or the gymnasts invent entirely new skills and so then the FIG has to go back to the rule book and say okay like what do we think of this how many points is it worth what is what is the ideal version of this um, element look like and what deductions might arise from it if a you know gymnast makes common mistakes so yeah it's a it's ongoing back and forth kind of yeah and so then it seems like um, in, in a lot of ways that sort of whoever with FIG sort of having control over the code, that on the one hand, while they carry a lot of power in sort of deciding who wins gold medals, but also which styles are sort of appropriate and which ones need to be sort of relegated to the sidelines and that sort of thing. But then athletes, and then I'm guessing coaches are involved in this too, are also sort of trying to develop, like are developing the sport in sort of their own way. So I like kind of this back and forth that you talked about. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's really interesting. <laughs> Definitely. And I, I just have to ask, were there any um, responses to the FIG's uh, BLM statement, like any kind of reactions to it or was it just sort of accepted and that sort of thing? Um, so I haven't seen any responses to it. I've seen, um, some gymnastics media kind of pick up the statement and uh you know publicize it but no one's really critiqued it um and i don't know if it's even really being picked up by um, or outside the gymnastics media but uh yeah it's 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 not really being interrogated and i think the same could be said for a lot of sports any sort that really try to make such a claim like Mm-hmm. Or you you ban um, outright discrimination, but you know that's only a small part of the problem. There's a whole lot of these implicit kind of structural features that are really making uh, making it easier for white people, basically. And it's that kind of stuff that we need to really get into. I think. 
Absolutely. And I totally agree. It certainly is not only the FIG by any means. And, and certainly, yeah, like you said, pretty much any sport organization that is thoroughly entrenched and sort of in a, in a white perspective and, and white supremacy, right? There, that there's going to be sort of fallacy in any of their statements right now. Yeah. Um, so, so since you really laid out really well, um, sort of the, the purpose and then the the function of the the code of points, um, your work also um, you do a great job in your work of showing how um, the the style of women's artistic gymnastics has changed a lot over the last fifty plus years, um, and specifically you trace the shift. Um, from sort of a, a balletic style of gymnastics, which was popularized by the Soviet Union in the Eastern Bloc gymnastics programs during the Cold War, and how this was shifted by coaches and athletes primarily, it seemed, to a more acrobatic style of gymnastics in the 70s and 90s. Can you explain this shift and how it relates to notions of femininity in, in the sport? And then I have a question about FIG, but maybe we'll just talk about the shift and the notions of femininity for now. Yeah. Okay. So, um, femininity is just absolutely central to the sport. Um, it's kind of, uh, the, the reason gymnastics for women was, well, the reason gymnastics was extended to women, cause it was originally only men that did it. Um, and the reason that women's gymnastics was then accepted into the the olympic um the olympic games is because gymnastics really positioned itself as a sport appropriate for women so um i found in the uh, ioc archives correspondence between the fig leaders and um and ioc members in which the FIG is saying this sport is um, it's to promote harmonious flexibility and feminine grace. It um, it's it's just so appropriate for women. It won't undermine any of these ideas about um, women's passivity and 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 grace. It doesn't challenge masculinity because women compete on entirely different apparatus on an entirely different system of uh judgment where they are judged for these kind of dance features whereas men uh, their gymnastics focuses more on strength features um so it's just it, it really positions itself as at the forefront of women's sport and um, I think that's really important, actually, because there's a, there's a whole background to how women's sport more broadly got into the Olympic movement. But one thing gymnastics did is when, when the IOC basically said to a lot of sports federations, you need to get a women's program going because uh, Alice Millier from France has this kind of rival women's olympic games basically going so we need to stop it and the way to stop that is by getting the the, the sports <laughs> federations to to do their own women's sports and then then there's no reason for her games to exist so gymnastics did this um but they didn't just 
say like here's competition for women they they created a committee to to govern women's gymnastics and it had to be entirely made up of women um they decided what the rules were and everything coaches and judges had to be women and then obviously the athletes had to be women so the FIG really made a whole space for women it didn't just allow a woman's version of men's gymnastics it it created a new sport and a new space for women so in that sense you know it's really it did a lot for women's sport and in designing the sport as appropriate for women and not challenging ideas about masculinity um it it kind of proved that women could do sport without becoming men <laughs> so it it um it kind of calmed a lot of fears about the acceptability of women in sport um yeah and so this is me yeah, around the 1920s and 30s when women's artistic gymnastics becomes permanently accepted as an Olympic sport in 1952, it really holds fast to this role of promoting femininity and showing that women can be athletes while maintaining their good looks and their their roles as mothers and this kind of thing. And that kind of appeal to femininity has just stayed fundamental to the sport and now there are women are doing a lot of a lot more sports than just gymnastics um so it's I guess it's looking a bit outdated but at the time it was it was a really good way of getting women to do sport um so that's that's where the femininity kind of starts and all the movements are about being appropriate bodily movements for women and this is defined as um artistry is defined as uh flexibility and grace but in 1952 that's when women's artistic gymnastics becomes artistic and permanent that's also when the uh, soviet union first enters the olympic games and gymnastics was really popular there uh, but also when the Soviet Union enters the games, it 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 is it only enters with the assurance from its sports officials that they're gonna win. You know, everything they do, they're gonna do extremely well. And so gymnastics there um, kind of drew on cultural traditions from Russia, and so there was a really strong link with ballet, and this really suited gymnastics um positioning as appropriate for women these soft movements and this kind of look this appearance of floating um and so dance training was a big feature of of their training and the and their performances their routines um later on the sport starts to become more acrobatic and this is uh, this is starts starts in the sixties, um, but really takes hold in the nineteen seventies. Um, and there's a couple of reasons for this. 
the first one is that it's the the simple balletic style reaches a limit quite quickly you know there's only so many ways you can do a cartwheel before you start thinking okay can I do it with one hand what about no hands maybe I could (laughs) yeah yeah like I can do one flip maybe I can do two flips so it just kind of um progresses in that sense but when it does so uh again the the Soviet Union's kind of leading this because they're winning everything (laughs) um and because it's a judge sport, people just look at the winners and try and copy what they do. So it kind of um, perpetuates in that way. But what's happening in the Soviet Union is they're drawing on the another Russian tradition, which is the circus. So they're working with, um, yeah, circus, I guess, staff <laughs> um, who, who teach acrobatics. And then thirdly, um, there's a lot more male coaches moving into the sport in the 1970s and they they teach women a style of gymnastics that previously only really men had been doing and that was a lot more focused on acrobatics. Um, and so that's where that shift really started and then once acrobatics became essential to gymnastics um it's really just kind of kept going from there the the value of dance is still in the sport but it's not at its core like it like it was in the 1950s and early 60s mm-hmm. excellent um i just have like a few brief follow-ups um so when you're talking about part of this because i don't know this history um super well either um, so when you talked about Alice Milio in France, um, was that in the twenties or was that in the 1910s just to kind of give a sense of the chronology? So, yeah, so she's in the, uh, 1920s, she's, mm-hmm. um, helping campaign for women, especially in athletics, um, and the IOC and the International Athletic Federation have been very reluctant to allow women, which is, um, it's not a very, uh, what's the word? It's, it's a very popular kind of stance actually, because there are a lot of concerns about how any kind of vigorous exercise can genuinely harm women's health. And, um, they, you know, don't have enough energy to, to do sport, compete, the the aggression or competitiveness is just seen as as an absolutely masculine quality that is totally at odds with what is expected of women so there are kind of these physical and psychological justifications of why women should not be allowed to do sport but when Alice Millia is um she's she's getting women to do it anyway and so the IOC and International Athletics Federation are really if they don't jump on board they're going to lose control so mm-hmm. um that's they're really i guess almost forced to start thinking about women um by Alice's um activism so that's mm-hmm. early 1920s and by the late 1920s a lot of sports are 
if they don't already have an option for women, they, they're definitely looking at it. Yeah. So thank you. And so, and so when, when you're talking about how um, like 1952 is a, is a big moment because not only is this when women's artistic gymnastics enter the Olympic realm as in a, in a permanent, as a permanent fixture, but also this is when the Soviet Union joins um, the IOC. And so with the Soviet Union playing such a big role in, um, I don't want to say dictating, but in sort of encouraging um, how the sport is developing, was there like pushback uh, either from the the sort of the FIG, the, the other members of the FIG or the IOC um, about the Soviet or the Eastern Bloc sort of um, not controlling, but, you know, influencing the sport? Um, I don't think there is because it's it's not so overt. It is, like I say, more in they're doing these amazing performances and and those performances are recognized and rewarded by with winning and so it's kind of the soft influence of people just emulating what they do at least early on um very quickly the uh, soviet members become part of the FIG executive and they they really gain power in influencing the sport through its governance, through the FIG, within a decade or two. Um, I, I do know for the IOC, the Soviet members were a huge part of uh, getting women's gymnastics a, a secure position in the Olympic movement because they they really lobbied for women's sport and this was a women's sport that critics or skeptics in western countries could still kind of accept because because women were behaving femininely in this sport Mm. so um yeah Soviet sports officials really did did help with with getting gymnastics accepted and later on with shaping what it became yeah i mean i really i really appreciate sort of your phrasing of like the soft influence um and and i've seen how do i say in in some of my work there's a little bit more um of sort of I don't want to say direct tensions, but like in the early, late forties, early fifties and, and Hungary had been a part of the Olympic movement since um, the very beginning, since 1896. So they were not like a new member, but the IOC, they were particularly upset about these like communist, um, communist state backed um, sort of sport leaders wanting to get into the IOC, but the IOC quickly realizes perhaps much like the FIG did um, in gymnastics Um, But they realize that like, oh, well, these these Eastern Bloc members, like they bring in a lot of um, support for sport and sort of support for what we're trying to do. And they really take sport as a whole seriously. And that this can actually benefit us as the as the like for the Olympic movement. Um, And it sounds like maybe within the FIG, it sort of did a similar thing for gymnastics. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, like with the IOC, um, they were they had their doubts about the Soviet Union and you know, it, it not living up to IOC amateur ideals and that kind of thing. But they also knew that, you know, it's this such a big country, such a world power. The Olympics don't really work if you exclude them, especially mm-hmm. when they're publicly trying to 
access the Olympic movement. So, um, yeah, of course, of course, the Soviet Union becomes accepted um, in the IOC. And I think also for gymnastics, it's it's really popular in the Soviet Union and uh, some Eastern European countries. Um, there's quite strong like national traditions of gymnastics from the 19th century, whereas in a lot of Western countries, it just wasn't super popular. So when the Soviet Union comes in, it's it's kind of relatively easy for um, their officials and their gymnasts to gain this kind of influence because they're not really up against much. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One one thing I wanted to say too um, is that um, not that I, I don't study gymnastics by any means, but I interviewed um, Andrea Bodo, who got who um, has her name is longer than that, but that was her maiden name, and she was a Hungarian uh, gymnast who went to the I think the 1952 Olympics and 1956, and she defected in 56, and then became like a coach and a, and a, a figure within the American gymnastics movement. But when I interviewed her, she told me how um, her teammates remembered when the Soviets came over to Hungary and I think it was 1951 to learn from them about Olympic sports in general and sort of how they're done and learn the rules and stuff. And again, this was like a year before the Soviets joined the Olympic movement, but that the, um, the Soviet gymnasts, they didn't know how to jump up on the beam. Like they had stairs <laughs> to get up to the beam. And so I guess I'm sure in her mind, this was, this was like, I mean, hilarious. And it is really funny, but she's like, yeah, they were walking up these stairs and we just couldn't believe they didn't know, like they didn't know how to jump up on the beam. Um, but, you know, I don't know enough about whether, like how much there's like a long-standing tradition in Hungary, but I know in the fifties they were, uh, they had a pretty, they had, they won a lot of gold medals, but I don't actually know mm. much more than that. Yeah. Well, um, I'm not sure about the specifics of Hungary, but I know gymnastics, the, it, it basically begins in Germany actually. Um, mm-hmm. And there's various, it, similar things happening at a similar time in that um in the 19th century in neighboring countries but um yeah the the german influence is certainly one of the biggest in terms of yeah what the sport looks like and the apparatus and stuff but also that is your story is really interesting because until 1952 um women had done like exhibition kind of gymnastics but not competing and when they had done that it was different every time so some years they would compete on rope climbing other times they would do uh like the same apparatus as men um other years I've seen photos of people of like 10 gymnasts standing on a beam at once and they would all just do a routine together on the spot and then jump (laughs) off so like it's it kind of makes sense that in some countries they walked upstairs to get onto the beam and in other countries they had you know what we would consider a proper mount to do so now so yeah that's so interesting yeah and and so um how how did the fig respond to this move towards acrobatic gymnasts gymnastics, especially because 
that the, the balletic form was very much steeped and like portrayed as being very graceful and feminine and sort of womanly, whereas acrobatics takes a lot, you know, more strength, the more power, more muscle. So I'd love to sort of hear uh, what you found about what the how the FIG responded to this change. Yeah. So um, when acrobatics starts coming in, and when it's the more mature kind of looking women who tend to be in their 20s and they have hips and breasts they um when they're doing it the fig is kind of it doesn't it almost doesn't even comment on it it's just like these women are doing amazing things great but when it's younger gymnasts doing it that um the fig really doesn't like it and they say they don't like the acrobatics, but they're only really making these comments when the women doing it are uh, basically prepubescent. So the FIG is saying it's not feminine when women do these acrobatics, but they're also at the same time saying your body doesn't look feminine. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not the skill itself of doing a somersault it's the that is that is masculine it's the the fact that you have visible muscles and you've lost your hips or whatever that that's the kind of issue um that the fig is really kind of grappling with and it's you can kind of see this because the the fig actually promotes acrobatics at the same time as it's talking about how much it hates it so in the um discussions of FAG leaders they're saying you know we're sick of these these dronings where where gymnasts kind of just have background music and don't really do anything that corresponds with it we want to see this harmonious link between emotion and sound and performance um and that's what women can do best girls can't do this and they also talk about how they don't want to see gymnasts aren't circus performers they're you know they're mature and considered and everything kind of yeah just I'm, I'm not really sure what the word is but but the I'm just thinking about my how I'm going to say this, but at the same time, they they are saying you you must do um, three or five or just ever increasing numbers of what they call elements of greater difficulty. And in their code of points, they have listed difficulty of elements, and all all of the higher difficulty elements are the acrobatic ones. So. They are, in fact, asking gymnasts to do acrobatics. Um, so this argument that they they don't like acrobatics it doesn't really hold too strong without the without acknowledging that in fact they don't like young gymnasts. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, and then also they, in addition to encouraging it through the rules, they encourage it through the equipment as well. So they add um padding to the beam and you know more padding to the mats underneath each apparatus um, springs to the floor so it's kind of like well they they don't actively 
encourage uh, they don't actively demand the acrobatics in those situations but also like what did what did they expect you know they've, they've created these conditions in which the gymnasts of course they're going to try these things so yeah yeah sort of a- as they make the sport sort of safer right then that sort of encourages or could be seen to like encourage oh we can sort of do more now that we have more padding that sort of thing yeah exactly and so it's this it's an issue in gymnastics and a couple of people that I interviewed for my research talked about it and um we're not really sure if there really is a solution like it just seems to be that every time the FIG does make things safer the gymnasts are kind of they feel they feel safer to push push what they're doing a little bit further and mm-hmm. you know they're, they're pushing it further because because they want to win but also they want their name in the code of points they they feel like they they can do it now whereas you know the equipment limited them before so yeah it's it's an ongoing evolution we haven't had any major changes to the equipment since um about 2001 where they introduced a new vaulting table uh to replace the kind of there's like a thin what we called a horse before that um but and they did they actually introduced that in response to some pretty severe injuries um a a paralysis and a death and uh, yeah it's you know um so they, they developed this for a really long time I think about a, a decade or so of kind of testing this equipment and finally introduced it um and it's the same for men and women which is uh interesting because usually they try to make the apparatus different for men and women um and it's a lot it's safer because it's softer and it's a wider surface area for the gymnasts to use but as a result of that change we've seen this uh proliferation of the a vault called the MNR that I mentioned before that um before that one gymnast had done it and it, was, it still is incredibly risky but now it's kind of like every gymnast that makes finals will probably have that vault. It's hard, but it's kind of also the expectation. Hmm. Yeah. Fascinating. Super fascinating. <laughs> um, so, so you've mentioned a little bit already about how um, the gender identity of gymnastics coaches have changed over time. And in particular in your work, and you talk about how it went from being dominated by gender where men were literally banned from the training halls and competition floors to really being dominated by male coaches. And I would say from like a contemporary, pers- contemporary perspective, um, it does seem to be really dominated by men, although less, less so compared to like sports like swimming, where it really, really is mainly male coaches. Mm-hmm. Um, now, how did this transformation occur um, and sort of what, if anything, um, what influence did the Cold War have on this transformation? So early on, uh, in when women's gymnastics became a sport, it, like I said before, it was the space for women, and um, yeah, women were the main coaches, and they de- they decided the rules and and everything. Um, and even in the early days of the Cold War, um, women 
women remained being the main coach at uh, main coaches some soviet gymnasts did have male coaches but because of the fig's rules those coaches couldn't be on the competition floor so so the women coaches ended up becoming the head coaches and so this you know is perpetuating this this notion of gymnastics as a space where women can really excel and reach these top positions and then i'm not really sure why but those rules start relaxing so men are allowed to be on the competition floor as assistant coaches they women a woman still has to be the main coach but men are now allowed to be present and that's in around this the 70s i believe and it's as 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 more men come into the sport as coaches it changes what the sport looks like um as i said before they you know they start teaching women the acrobatics and they also start uh working with younger gymnasts who are more like in their body they are more similar to young boys that who who they're more accustomed to working with um around the 70s around the world coaching begins professionalizing um i think this is related to the cold war and this there's just generally an investment in sport it's taken a lot more seriously and people get training in um sports science and you know biomechanics and coaching is part of that uh it becomes it becomes a vocation rather than i guess like a a volunteering thing and when that happens a lot more men kind of flood all sports actually um so that's definitely seen in gymnastics and i think it's it's important to see this internationally because i know a lot of these discussions take place around the introduction of title 9 but actually that doesn't explain why it's happening everywhere mm-hmm. so yeah and in in gymnastics the this is the the importance of male coaches it's justified in a number of ways they say men are uh, tend to be bigger and stronger than women and so for spotting athletes it it's a huge advantage having a male coach because uh when you learn anything in gymnastics there's a lot of contact between the coach and the gymnast and the coach will often like physically lift the gymnast through a whole somersault in slow motion and then put them back down on the ground and you know the the learning process is, is to do that that somersault a little bit faster every time with a little bit less uh weight in the hands of the coaches so the gymnast is learning to do it more and more independently each time so there is um there is this element where like you don't you obviously don't have to be a man to be able to to spot a gymnast but if you're if you are bigger and you are stronger it's easier to to lift another human being 
Um, mm-hmm. But there's also this other element to the increasing number of male coaches, which is that as coaching becomes more professional and it's seen as um, it becomes more scientific and informed by, you know, these, I guess, academic developments, it's also uh, the role of men is is seen as, well, men are seen as more able to do a good job of this professional coaching because men are seen as inherently more rational and logical and able to understand these scientific uh, issues in a way that inferior women basically can't. So um, they are kind of, they kind of just shoot to the top of these coaching dynamics and women become relegated to stuff the the elements of gymnastics that are considered women's work which is um beam balance beam because there's no balance beam in men's gymnastics um and dance on the floor because again men don't do this men male coaches take the lead on vault on bars and on floor um for tumbling because those are all based on all all done in the in the men's version of the sport and in putting women coaches into these restrictive roles they're also saying women um are like in the same way that men are scientific and rational women are tend to be more emotional and good at this kind of thing and so emotion is kind of expressed through dance in gymnastics and so although like there's obviously no evidence for the fact that men are more rational and women are more emotional these stereotypes are really funneling men and women into different aspects of coaching um and i think one of the most interesting things about this is that this is a sport where the performance of femininity is just essential to how the sport is designed and how you win but now from the 1970s onwards you basically have men teaching femininity which is just this absolute paradox and that's that's why there are these women assistant coaches um kind of trying to step up to to do that but the other frustrating thing is you know these women coaches they're relegated to beam and floor dance but they are actually coaching across every apparatus they're just not really getting the credit for it um so yeah it's just this huge shift and it's really kind of stuck yeah, wow, that is super fascinating. Um, and I, and I guess I have one sort of specific follow up question, and that is, how did so so this the sport like the FIG and sort of the sport in general was dominated by by women, and so how did these women respond when men started taking a larger role and sort of making these arguments? And I mean, like female coaches, um, women sport leaders within the FIG. Um, yeah, I just, I, 
I just can't imagine that they would sort of roll over and be okay mm-hmm. with this. So uh, yeah, I would love to hear what you think about that. Yeah, I don't, I think because it happened kind of gradually, as in like one team would, you know, have a male assistant coach and then a few more teams would, and then a handful of those teams would have the uh, male coach now as the head coach. It, It happened so gradually that there was no kind of sudden response where women were like no we need to protect our roles for women mm-hmm. um so I think that's part of it I, I haven't seen in any FIG discussions that they really even thought about it too much but on the other hand um in the 1970s the uh, president of the FIG was a Soviet sports official and he from like he worked with national gymnastics federations and kind of linked them up with Soviet coaches. Um, so there's one example of a Soviet coach going to Australia to teach Australian coaches about coaching. And when he's there, he's really s- selling this um, division of labor on, on a gendered basis. And he basically tells the Australian gymnastics community to have male coaches as head coaches this is normal in the soviet union like that's why we win kind of thing and so kind of unquestioningly the community in australia is like okay we'll do that too you know and so the fig is not officially you know releasing statements that this is the way to go but it is also um unofficially just promoting this way of being that's coming from the FIG leadership, though, not the the governing, not the subcommittee that governs women's gymnastics. So they might have differences of opinion there. And I think also the the fact that the FIG president um, is a Soviet man, I imagine he probably had links with the Soviet coach that he sent to Australia. So mm. there's, there's personal networks at play at this in, in, as well. Absolutely. And I would just say too, and, and again, I, you know, I would want to see more evidence about it. I mean, this is a form of like cultural diplomacy, right? E- even if mm-hmm. the coach is being sent on behalf of the FIG, like you said, the coach probably, I mean, I mean, in order for him, the coach to be approved, like he would have to be approved to go to Australia by mm-hmm. the Soviet sport leadership. So there absolutely had to have been connections there. Um, the early 1970s is like way too early for coaches in the Eastern Bloc to have just been able to like go over on their own, you know, that that could have yeah. um, happened. Absolutely. Um, and also the the FIG president, um, her, his name is Yuri Titov. Um, he is employed by the Soviet Sports Committee. He's mm-hmm. got, you know, his, his addresses at the Sports Committee in Moscow and like this, these leadership roles in international federations are also roles that are paid for by the government so it's it's not um independent by any means absolutely and you know it was it's funny um, in my notes when i was reading your work um i highlighted the comments that this coach soviet coach made his name is victor komutov right mm-hmm. yeah 
and and he and I and I noted the quote that you have in there where he t- tells these Australian coaches and officials quote spotting is physically difficult and requires the strength of a man. Girls in the teens relate better to a man and work harder. End quote. Which is like the second part to me just kind of it's such a it's such a statement that you know I think of myself as like a teenage girl would have been like what that is you know it doesn't make any <laughs> sense um but it's you know something that you know if you're also talking about this you know if you're hearing this sort of logic about like rational coaches you know scientific you know all of sort of these these sort of enlightenment but also masculinized words then that would sort of be par for the core in terms of sort of what you've been hearing um, and then, you know, it's, it's also interesting. And I talked about this a little bit in, in my episode that, and it's a topic I'm working slowly on is this issue of like gender and sport and at least hungry. And this idea that, you know, on, on one level, when it came to athletes, like male and female athletes were treated the same, but kind of when you get to like the coaching level, um, that there's that there are definitely disparities and the disparities are largely because of like the, the sport structure and the sport bureaucracy, it's patriarchal and it's dominated by men. Um, so that very much like aligns with what you're saying here with the sort of Soviet uh, gymnastics leader of the FIG, but also, you know, connections within the, the patriarchal sport bureaucracy that definitely um, links up with sort of what I found so far. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so you have this really fantastic quote that I want to read to you and to listeners, because I think it really, really perfectly weaves together the complicated and also harmful ways that the entry of male coaches change the sport of artistic gymnastics and also ties in this issue of age, which you've mentioned before, and that we'll get to. Um, so you say, quote, the entry of male coaches into women's artistic gymnastics had a remarkable impact on the sport. They brought with them a wealth of assumptions about the bodies in the sport and the gymnastics they should be performing. While male gymnasts were rarely competitive before they had reached peak peak strength at full maturity in their early 20s, women reached their peak strength when, when they went through puberty earlier. Puberty even reduced women's strength to weight ratio as their bodies began to hold more fat, so coaches preferred working with prepubescent athletes. Sports scholar Natalie Barker-Rukti noted that undeveloped girls resembled the boys, as you said, that male coaches were accustomed to working with. These coaches started teaching female gymnasts the acrobatics that had previously been limited to the men's discipline, but muscularity and risk were sanctioned masculine traits. For women, this was not the feminine ideal that the FIG had envisioned. Um, so you, could you explain a little bit more about sort of this this age issue um, and also sort of how the FIG responded to to these changes? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think in this quote, this kind of starts a conversation about assumptions about how we coach. And there is a real value in gymnastics um, as kind of assigned to these key ideas of lightness um early on that was about women appearing to be light when they move through the air with ease but as the sport becomes more acrobatic this idea of lightness is more related to lifting the athletes through the air when when you're spotting them as a coach um it's related to docility and compliance um the younger 
prepubescent gymnasts weren't just more like young boys who who the men had worked with male coaches had worked with um it's also related to kids being kind of easier to manipulate almost they you know you ask them to do something and they do it because they're kids and they're taught to do what they're told they don't challenge the coach so that's a really important um aspect of this this trend towards younger gymnasts and then it's kind of uh legitimized in these this growing scientific literature around sport in which men get stronger as they get older towards their 20s women reach their full strength before puberty because their strength to weight ratio changes and so all of these kind of pressures are coinciding to to justify or promote working with younger athletes there's so there's a lot of reasons why coaches are finding this more effective um the problem with working with younger athletes besides obviously the issues with harm and agency and this kind of thing is that for the fig for women's gymnastics younger athletes are seen as if not uh not feminine they're also seen as too masculine particularly when they're doing this acrobatic style of gymnastics and they they've got this low um uh body fat ratio so they look really muscular and it's it's all linked with these this idea of the purpose of women's gymnastics is performing femininity and the fig um is concerned about this because it it got gymnastics women's gymnastics accepted into the olympic program on the basis of the fact that the sport is appropriate for women and and uh, promotes femininity so if you have these these kids who who do not have womanly bodies performing acrobatics that seem to be inconsistent like the, the riskiness of them and the dynamics of them are quite they're inconsistent with these ideas of women's bodily movements being calm and slow and passive the fig is genuinely concerned that it's strayed too far from its purpose and the olympic committee is going to kick gymnastics out of the games so it's kind of trying to deal with this pressure and bring gymnastics back into its original purpose um but the popularity of um this acrobatic style of gymnastics and these younger childish uh, athletes kind of solidifies it. So Olga Corbett in 1972, um, she didn't win the all around, but she was an incredibly popular athlete who, who was kind of notorious for her acrobatics. And she was she was actually seventeen at those games, but she is still prepubescent. She has her hair in pigtails, and 
does this kind of floor routine where she looks like um it kind of looks like a child playing like she's kind of skipping and this kind of thing um it just absolutely wins people over um and it really cements this acrobatic and youthful style and then four years later Nadia Komanech also does an acrobatic style and she is actually a child she's 14 years old um that really cements the link between being young and doing acrobatic gymnastics and audiences loving it so it the FIG kind of gets stuck with the sport being young and acrobatic and um I guess thankfully for for keeping this keeping the IOC happy with gymnastics this popularity is enough to keep it keep gymnastics in the games even though it has strayed from its original purpose um but early on when when gymnasts were getting younger which is around um there's FIG discussion of it around 1968 to 1970 they impose age limits for the first time and the age limit is pretty young it's uh, 14 and as as this trend continues FIG appeals to uh, medicine and science to try to find a justification to get these kids out of the sport basically and so they commission a um, physiologist to investigate like the damages that uh, can be caused in young athletes from you know training too hard and doing this risky acrobatic gymnastics and the physiologist is like well actually it actually seems fine <laughs> so they did the if <laughs> didn't get the justification they wanted and so then they uh appealed to uh, a medical board um and the medical board is also like no it, it seems fine <laughs> like so if i can't really find this medical basis to get get rid of the young kids and the acrobatics and yeah, they get stuck with it, but it it ends up being okay because of the popularity. Um, yeah, I think also I I'm not sure if you're going to ask me about it later, but I haven't really talked about this this link between acrobatics and age in terms of femininity because there is a very good case for an argument that when gymnasts started doing acrobatics they apologized for the these masculine aspects of it um you know the risk the dynamics the the young gymnasts they apologize oh sorry the the prepubescent gymnasts they apologize for this masculinity by adopting a new form of femininity that centers on cuteness and they're wearing their mm. pigtails they start smiling for audiences um Olga Corbett, Corbett uh, famously cried in front of the camera um and so it kind of appeals to this 
um, association between women and youth and femininity and women kind of being like inferior to men this this age discussion is really also about yeah finding finding a way for females to perform some kind of femininity and that femininity is really it's centered on youthfulness and playfulness and um yeah so that becomes a really big part of the decline in age as well that that's fascinating um i i definitely got that from your work but i don't know if i had like thought to specifically ask about it and and you know it makes sense too right that coaches and athletes would sort of be well would feel motivated to figure out okay so how can we create sort of an an a different, a different, but also acceptable form of femininity, right? If we know that, that the FIG, which is the governing, you know, the, the international governing body of gymnastics, if we know that they prefer a certain style in a certain type of femininity, sort of what can we do to appease them or sort of apologize? I think that's interesting how you put it. Um, so that's, mm-hmm. that's really interesting. And, and, you know, it leads me to something else I've been wondering is like, so, so you mentioned earlier about how um, gymnasts are motivated or really are, are one way that they're motivated in their success is to, to have a, a specific maneuver named after them and like not only named after them, but like codified and mm. historicized essentially in the code of points. And I guess I'm kind of wondering like, to what extent have you found that the gymnasts themselves are influencing what's going on? Like how much is it the gymnast? How much is it their coach? And this may be a really difficult question to parse based on the archival materials, but I'd sort of love to hear if you've sort of been able to figure that out. Yeah, um, it's a really good question. And I have an interesting moment of of my research process about this. Um, So when I started out, I was kind of creating a list of people I wanted to talk to for this research and I had you know this list of my my favorite gymnasts from around the world I was like oh I'm gonna have (laughs) cool conversations with them and it's gonna like my uni is gonna pay for it like ah this is work this is amazing and I spoke to the, the first people I could get in contact with tended to be um kind of like coaches and officials and I was kind of hoping through them I could get to some of these gymnasts and um everyone everyone I spoke to was like why do you want to talk to the gymnasts (laughs) that's actually what they said and I was like oh I, I don't know like I just think it might be interesting to you know hear their experiences and um these coaches and officials were like well the gymnasts they won't have anything to tell you. Like they just do what they're told. They go to training and they go home. And even at international competitions, that's what they do. So like if you want to ask about Cold War politics and this kind of thing, like they have, they won't know. And um, I guess kind of foolishly, I was like, oh yeah, it makes sense. And it's not until I've gotten much later in my research research process that I was like, oh my, like the gymnasts are just, that was such an oversight not to have spoken to more of them. Um, in any case, like I, I did manage to speak to some and there's a lot of good autobiography 
that um, you can use to kind of get an idea of these gymnast experiences. Um, but what I've found is some of the some of the best gymnasts, the reason they're so uh, memorable and they were so successful is because they had a really good collaborative um, relationship with their coach. So uh, an example is um, one gymnast called uh, Natalia Yuchenko, who she was active in the 1980s and a whole style of vault is named after her they're called the Yuchenko vault and that's the one where you kind of do a round off it's like a cartwheel onto the springboard and then you jump backwards over the vaulting horse all of those vaults are considered the Yuchenko family and she and her coach together from what I understand developed that vault they saw they actually saw a male gymnast doing it and he in the Soviet Union at um and he didn't really get rewarded from it and it went nowhere but uh Natalia and her coach Vladislav uh, Rastorovsky they kind of saw this and were like oh this this is a solution to getting these young gymnasts oh uh, not young small gymnasts over the vaulting horse which is like the same size as them you can get a lot more momentum if you if you were to vault this way but no one's ever done it before so they work together to figure out you know can is this going to work um and that's the way she tells it on on her website and that's kind of like the the folklore of it so I mean that's that's an example of yeah coaches and gymnasts really working together to like put their name on the sport but I think a lot of it is also that's that's probably maybe exceptional because the sport is notorious for quite like authoritarian style coaching. Um, yeah, I've also read that a lot of new elements, you know, were invented by mistake. Like if mm. you're trying to do one thing and you're trying to do like, you know, a, a flip and catch the bar and, you end up actually like on totally on the other side of the apparatus catching the the other bar. You're like, oh well maybe maybe actually we should run with this and see if we can see if we can do this on purpose. Um so there is that and it just requires, you know, the it requires the coach to um be open to exploring those things. Uh but in the seventies and eighties you actually got points for innovation so there, there was an incentive to kind of work together on creating new things and when you have um, that kind of kind of freedom to be creative um like it's the coach can't really just come up with a new thing well I mean they can come up with a new thing and make you do it but they a good coach and I, I think most at most of the invented skills have been done collaboratively because gymnasts tend to be good at um each be good at different things so like some gymnasts will find twisting quite a lot easier than doing multiple somersaults um 
and you know other gymnasts will like really struggle on bars but be like find beam quite easy so I think it would it would be very hard for a coach to uh, come up with a skill and then try and make a gymnast doing do it without kind of working with that gymnast and be like okay like what do you find what kind of movement patterns do you find easy like what could we do with this um yeah that's fascinating wow um i i think you, you did a great job of explaining how it seems like in sort of the best of circumstances right that like at these gymnasts and and coaches could have as you said like a collaborative relationship and that it seems like too that to a certain extent, I mean, the coaches do sort of rely on gymnasts knowing knowing their body and sort of if, if a certain maneuver isn't working right, maybe helping them figure out how to make it work, if that makes sense. Um, yeah, but I also think, I don't know if it's more like the, the coaches observing what a gymnast is finding easier or harder and trying to encourage them down a certain path because there is quite a lot of evidence that suggests that coaches, in fact, do not listen to mm. gymnasts. So um, I think it's probably unusual for a gymnast to uh, maybe drive that conversation. But if a coach is, um, explains like, oh, you tend to be good at these things, let's pursue this, that's probably how the co uh, collaboration would look. Um, yeah. Gotcha. That, no, thanks for that clarification. Um, and I, and I do want to get to this, you mentioned how coaches, uh, in this sport tend to be sort of authoritarian and that is something that I, I want to come back to. Um, but before, before we do that, um, I wanted to talk, so I think this is my last question about the cold war. Um, but as you and sort of listeners know, like cold war and sport and cold war sport politics is something that's really up close to my own research. Um, and I wanted to hear from you, you know, what impact did the fall of communism in 1989 in Eastern Europe and the dissolution of the Soviet Union in 1991, like how did these events influence gymnastics globally? Um, and what role did Western nations and coaches have in this development as well? Um, so it, it, had, it had a huge impact at the end of the Cold War. Uh, coaches in the Eastern Bloc had um kind of a privileged role in society i think you talked about it in your episode like they they tend to get better housing and cars and they can travel their salaries are quite good but when they these governments fall and they sport loses funding and these coaches are left kind of um without anything so they start seeking to move to the west and I talked to someone who recruited the first Soviet coach to a western country and that was in Australia and she said that um she just saw like in the classified section of the main uh, like international gymnastics magazine it's called international gymnast in the classified section there was just an ad from the 
former head coach of the Soviet Union looking for work. And so she was like, oh, my gosh, bring him over. <laughs> um, wow. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's it's so interesting. And so he, his name was Rodionenko, Andre Rodionenko. And so he came over to uh, Perth in Western Australia. Um, and he got there and just, she said he didn't, he didn't just coach. Like he arrived and saw every uh, like group that was in the gymnasium and if the way they were gymnasts were like progressing through the levels and immediately just saw like the structural um, issues and improvements. So he had an impact on redesigning or re like even just questioning that it, it might be redesigned in Australia, but also, so when he moved out there a lot of other gymnastics clubs and countries were like oh like we we also would like a soviet coach please um and mm-hmm. and rodinenko is like well all my all my friends would like jobs so there's this whole like network that happens and um all these coaches that used to come together from various parts of the soviet union they would come together for training camps um and they were all like really good friends from this experience. They all kind of got each other jobs around Western countries and they tended to get over to these countries and just go straight to the top positions, um, if not always by being recruited to a head coach position. Like they were, they quickly proved that they knew how to coach and get results so they quickly ascended to these positions but an interesting aspect of this whole recruitment is that um it perpetuated this gendering of coaching that i talked about before where male coaches male coaches were the ones who were recruited and they were recruited to um like key roles in their clubs or countries and most of them were married to female coaches who were not recruited. They they were just like, they were seen as a bonus. So we're going to get this great Soviet uh, male coach and we're lucky because his wife can help out on beam. <laughs> so <laughs> like, yeah, so that kind of happened all around the world. And they had incredible technical knowledge because this the sport is is very technical like the way that you can get your body to do twists and flips and stuff it's it's all about like the angles you're hitting and how to train your body to feel whether you're you know two degrees off the right angle from getting that maximum height so there's there's a heaps of technical like yeah knowledge behind it um so they they brought over this knowledge and it really increased the quality of gymnastics like around the world. But at the same time, everyone increased because of this. So it didn't really make anyone more competitive in that way. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, everyone was now at a higher level. Um, so one thing they did bring over is this. Um, idea of score fixing that had kind of happened all throughout the Cold War where judges 
basically arranged results like before the competition and all the scores were just kind of preordained um which is a whole a whole nother thing that's part of the history of the sport but they (laughs) they brought this over to their new countries and we're still trying to do it but now instead of like a small number of eastern bloc countries just arranging the scores amongst themselves everyone's trying to do it so it kind of gets like a, a lot more out of control and um the FIG gets in trouble with the IOC for awarding way too many ties and that's actually why um in gymnastics at the Olympic Games they have tiebreakers now whereas like other Mm. sports are still allowed ties (laughs) but yeah gymnastics isn't allowed them um wow so yeah that, that kind of happened as well um also when these coaches came over they they didn't just bring their their knowledge of gymnastics but they they instituted some communist sport practices like um the training camps and uh where you know people from around the country all meet together and these kind of things did really improve um the quality of gymnastics in their new home countries um i know that the they while they brought all this knowledge they weren't great at sharing it they didn't really lead education seminars or anything so a lot of western coaches didn't really learn much from this these former eastern bloc coaches and also um there was a lot of animosity towards these immigrants actually you know that people were quite defensive of their own patch and their own expertise and they they were very mistrustful of um eastern bloc coaches there were a lot of allegations of how um how abusive they were like the the way they talked to co- uh, to gymnasts this kind of thing but i kind of talk about this in my work because i, I think there's a there's a real um like racist element to this actually there's really mm-hmm. good evidence that a lot of these practices that coaches are saying are abusive um they're not limited to eastern bloc immigrants they they were already happening and western coaches are doing it so um yeah i think i talked to some migrant like immigrant uh, former Soviet coaches, and they they said they struggled with this. They were not accepted into their gymnastics communities in in new countries. Um, and also they struggled with changing their coaching because there was kind of a more disposable approach to coaching where like you only had to get one good you had to train one good gymnast and that's your ticket to the national team and it's it's fine whereas in these western countries um you're responsible for training a whole team of good gymnasts you're only as good as your worst gymnast kind of thing so Mm -hmm. the responsibilities widened a lot and um a lot of times like 
some of the ed, like Western administrators and officials who brought these coaches over had to work quite closely with um, the Soviet coaches to kind of say what is culturally okay, like, you know, you can't talk to the kids like this or like, no, you can't go into, like, you've always got to be, have another coach present kind of thing and just some of these rules um, and like par- uh, expectations from parents and stuff about what is okay. Uh, but in in America and pr- probably more countries, um, these kind of guidelines about th- these like cultural mediators, these Westerners who are trying to teach the Soviets how to behave in their new environments, um, they weren't always present. And so that's where, mm. to be fair, like some um, cultural like adaptation didn't really happen and has has caused problems, but also like due to miscommunication and misunderstanding. And that concludes part one of our interview with Dr. Georgia Servin. Stay tuned. Later in the week, we'll release part two of this wonderful interview. Thank you for listening to another episode of The End of Sport. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to like, share, and subscribe. Give us a follow on Twitter or Instagram at endofsportpod, or shoot us an email at theendofsport at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.